Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming. My name is Doug Phelps, and on behalf of Explore Booksellers, I would like to welcome you all to this, this afternoon's conversation about truth in journalism in an era of fake news. Just a word about the bookstore um, and a few thank yous. In, uh, especially in a community like Aspen, which was resurrected on the idea of a community serving its members by fostering mind, body, spirit. We at the bookstore regard a community bookstore much like community newspaper or the Aspen Institute or the library or any of the other nonprofit cultural institutions that we love in Aspen. And that is that it's a public trust and we try to run it that way. And with that in mind, as I say, I would like to start by, first of all, thanking the staff, both current and past, of the Explore Bookstore for the service they provide to the community. <laughs> I would also, on behalf of the bookstore, like to thank our speakers who volunteered their time quite generously to share their thoughts with us this afternoon. I would like to thank all of you, patrons and customers of Explore Booksellers and all the other great institutions in Aspen, because obviously without you, we couldn't exist. I'd like to thank Sam and Cheryl Wiley, who for a number of years were the primary financial backers and uh, patrons of Explore Booksellers. And last but not least, I would like to thank Catherine Thalberg, who founded, managed, and nurtured Explore Booksellers for three decades. And on, on that note, I would like to welcome and bring up Catherine's husband, a friend, I'm sure who you all know, a friend of mine, our former mayor, Bill Sterling. A round of applause for Doug. The community icon has been saved because of Doug Phelps. So I'm here to introduce the, the speakers and the moderators. So if Tom and Lauren and Elaine, if you all come on up. I think uh, Tom and Lauren will be sitting in these two seats and then Elaine over there. Gotta go, Lauren. The Explore More effort that he mentioned just briefly morphed uh, from a committee called the Save Explore Committee. It was made up of just a few locals and I just would like to name them real quickly. Uh, first is uh, uh, Ellen Hunt, and I know she's around somewhere here. Also it's uh, Linda Lafferty in the back row there, Andy Stone. Linda Pavlovsky, pa Pavlovsky here, and uh, Gary Plumley from Grape and Grain. And then we had an unofficial member named Mike Klein, who's right here in the middle over there. And what we did is we tried to organize some people to uh, purchase the store, and we lost out in a bidding war. And uh, Doug's group won, and we were so happy about that. So, so, so today, something's really interesting about these three people on the stage. Uh, there's a common link that they all have. One is, is that each of them have been living 
in and out of Aspen, part-time, full-time, over the last five decades. Number two, they have each won national writing awards uh, that are significant awards. And thirdly, uh, they have helped catapult explore to the position that it's in today as the cultural and the literary center of our town. Mm -hmm. And so that's the things they have in common. First, Tom, uh, in the middle here. Uh, Tom has been writing for the New York Times since 1981, and during that time, he's won three Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, he's been sort of in charge of uh, the economics of uh, the, the uh, opinion page. He's been the op-ed editor. He's been the White House correspondent. And he's written six books somehow in between all that time. Uh, the most recent one, and they all have, he, he's a man who can coin a phrase. Um, I mean, the name of his latest book is Thanks for Being Late. Uh, you know, that's a good thing for me. I'm always late. Uh, but, but he has a way of coining phrases. They're, you know, they're oxymorons sometimes. They're metaphors. They're ironies. Uh, you know, the Lexus and the olive tree, the world is flat. At any rate, he's a compelling writer, and he really sees the, the events unfolding, and, uh, and he's able to write about them in a way that complicated issues that we can all understand. He distills them down. And you know, he's an optimist on top of all that, but you know what he can do? Is he can hit a five iron more than 175 yards straight as a dime. <laughs> Lauren, Lauren is also a journalist who's been all over the world for years and years, uh, from you know, Cuba to Iran to Afghanistan, to, uh, all over the Middle East and Tuscany even, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and he and Tom were co-winners of the Pulitzer Prize in 1983 both writing about the same subject, which was the Israeli invasion of Beirut and the aftermath and the, and the post effects of that. Tom writing for the New York Times and Lauren writing for the Post. Uh, later he became the well, owner. It was the Washington Post. <laughs> As in Washington. There's no other post. No. Well, we do know there is a, a rag in New York that is called the Post, that's true. Next, he became the editor and the owner of the Aspen Times, and he's kind of raised the whole level of journalism for our town. And when Elizabeth Papka died, uh, he wrote the uh, piece on her at the memorial service, and it was one of the most sublime and acknowledging pieces about the role that she played in our community in, in terms of creating things and, the, and, and the, all the things she did. Uh, then he went on to NPR, and he was head of the international desk there for 15 years. Um, Best man at his wedding, of course, was Dr. Hunter Thompson. Uh, and um, as an athlete, he is a, a skilled uh, technical climber, and he's climbed all the great peaks all around the world and, and done a lot of those climbs with a lot of different people who are great climbers from Aspen. So, so we needed someone who could handle these two guys, right? So we called on Elaine Pagels, who is a, a professor of religion uh, at Princeton, and, uh, and she's... Uh, uh, she won the MacArthur Prize, by the way, in 1982, uh, uh, which is a really significant uh, award and has a lot that uh, goes with that. Her first book, uh, The Gnostic Gospels, won the, uh, uh, what was the prize for that? That was a National Book Award. Then she wrote a book called Revelations. There's one in the, there was already a book in the Bible called Revelations. At any rate, it's all about, you know, uh, bad dreams and prophecy and politics. So, you know... 
she knows about the satanic side of the world that these guys report about, so she's a good one to lead the discussion. And then she got one of the, the, the National Humanities Awards from President Obama in 1915. Elaine? It's 2015. <laughs> At any rate, Elaine, take it away, please. <laughs> We're so happy you're here, and I'm delighted to be here with Lauren Jenkins and Tom Friedman, each of whom has dared to take on what are literally the most contentious and complicated issues in the world. And, you know, I've always thought that while the two of you have disagreed on, on what you have uh, found and on, on the basis of the evidence, we were so lucky to have both points of view so that we can evaluate our own. But it seems now we're in a, in a very different kind of world. I felt like I really needed this conversation. This is the only year I ever felt that I was uh, alternating between obsessively watching the news and switching it off. Mm -hmm. Sort of like pornography. I mean, you don't want to know all that. You can't help watching the news. It's wonderful. Yeah. question and we'll talk briefly and then we'll open it up so we have a lot of time. question is, we've always had good and bad news, you know that, and Lauren and I have talked about it. Um, what do you find different about this present climate in which questions of truth and news are challenging? you want to start with me? Yeah. Oh. Uh, That's good, Tom. First of all, I want to thank Doug for sponsoring this, for keeping the Explorer a thriving um, uh, bookstore that it is, an independent bookstore. For us authors, it is so important. And um, I've done signings at the Explorer Bookstore. I've written seven books, and I've done a signing at every one at the Explorer Bookstore, and they've all been fantastic. And God bless you for maintaining it and now broadening it into this kind of community project. So you're doing the Lord's work. Um, so the way I would think about uh, your, your, your question, Lane, is that um, I put sort of the, this term fake news into three buckets. Um, uh, the, the first and most important source of fake news is, uh, and I I'm, I'm don't want to turn this into a Trump discussion, but you cannot avoid it, is the fact that we have a president who is a, um, a, a deceitful person, uh, a dishonest, um, and um, uh, indecent person. And um, he lies as he breathes. And so there, we have never had someone at the helm of our country who generates um, uh, dishonesty, lies, fake news, whatever you want to call it. Just yesterday, he said, or the day before, in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, that the head of the Boy Scouts called him and said that his presentation to the Boy Scouts was the greatest speech ever given to the Boy Scouts. And then the Boy Scouts said, well, the head of the Boy Scouts said no such thing. Um, so then he said that the president of Mexico called him and said, you're right on in immigration, and the president of Mexico never called. So we've actually never been here before, where we have a president who lies as he breathes, and it, is, it happens with such regularity that um, catching up with it is nearly impossible, and then his spokespeople um, uh, never acknowledge it, but find ways to weasel out of it. Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, well, he was actually referring to conversations he had there. He kind of mixed them up, et cetera. So that's, we have someone generating fake news behind the presidential seal. 
We've never had that before. Then we have the world of the internet. And what happened, we saw it, it, it culminated in this election that people have discovered that they can generate fake news and sell ads on it, okay? And that um, it can be a really lucrative uh, source of income. That, uh, that I could uh, write that tomorrow, the Aspen um, Morning Tribune um, you know, says that um, you know, Bill Sterling is X, Y, or Z. Well, if you're sitting in Moscow now or India, um, you have no idea that there's no Aspen Morning Tribune, and if I put a nice headline up there, and then I get clicks for it, and then I, I basically leverage that on Facebook or Google or whatever, that generating fake news is now a business. Then we have the fact that we have a rival in the Soviet Union that has discovered that um, for less than the cost of a MiG-29, they could actually tilt our election uh, by generating and hiring people to generate fake news um, that would be clicked on and then spread by Twitter. And then you have uh, the newspapers that Lauren worked for, that, that I work for, who occasionally make mistakes. And when we do, we write corrections. Um, that's not fake news. We are humans. We make mistakes. CNN just made a big one, um, and the three people who did it um, got fired for it. Um, if, if I wrote on the front page in my column that the president of Mexico called me and said, Tom, your work on Mexico is outstanding, okay? <laughs> I can't tell you, I mean, your stuff, or the president, head of the Boy Scouts says, we're giving all the Boy Scouts your new book, okay? Um, and then it turned out that the Boy Scouts had wrote a letter to my publisher that no such conversation happened. I would be fired, okay? Um, there would be real sanction for that. Um, we make mistakes, we're human, but we, to loop back to the president, he now uses anytime we make a mistake to try to delegitimize all the truths we are saying about him and his administration. So that's kind of how I see it. Thank you. Well, I, th I think that we need to realize, I mean, there's always been yellow journalism in America. The age of good journalism is, is pretty recent in our history. In the 30s, 20s, before that, you know, people wrote all sorts of things. But you had to own a press and buy your ink in 50-gallon drums to be able to put something out there. And it, it limited the people that could distort news or use a press or an outlet in the public to express a personal opinion or a lie. What's happened, I think, and Tom pointed it out, is, is the birth of the internet certainly has made that easier. Anyone can get on and blog and put anything out there. And it's the problem of the reader to discern what they're reading. Is it true or not? Is this something that's been carefully thought out? Has it been well sourced? Uh, that's what good journalism does. Uh, you don't just get something and run with it and not check it out or try and get, get many sources to get it. it. The reality of journalism is that you live in a world of deception and lies always. And part of what good journalism is is to try and peer, piece through those deceptions and lies and find out where grains of truth lie and weave them together into a narrative that actually is based on provable fact and provable sources and reality. And what's going on now is, is uh, an effort to avoid reality because reality is questions uh, a certain segment of our population's view of what they want to be.
Thank you. That's important. But of course, the question we want to know is, what, what do you as journalists know about it that we need to know? What can you do about it? What should we do about it? What can we do about it? What would be the most useful kinds of response? Well, you know, we're just doing our job at the New York Times. I can only speak for my own newspaper, and, and um, it's to try to uh, do our job the way we always did, at the high standards we, we, we do them. And, um, uh, and again, we make mistakes all the time. We're human, and when we do, you, you correct them. Um, and I think the best thing you can do is buy a subscription to the New York Times. Um, uh, and the Washington Post. And the Washington yeah. Post. Yeah. And the Wall Street Journal and the LA Times and, and uh, give a donation yeah. to NPR. Um, you know, we have a little thing now, give a, give a subscription to a college student. I'm dead serious. Uh, if people do not financially support the NPRs of the world, the Washington Post of the world, they don't, they've got Jeff Bezos, we don't. Um, uh, but the, 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 wherever you see quality journalism, by the way, it can be an independent website in your town. But wherever you see quality journalism, throw your support behind it. Yeah. I think, yeah, you know, the best thing that's happened to journalism today is our president, Trump. I lived through an era when I worked for the Washington Post. It was a golden age after Watergate. Uh, it was one of the great newspapers in the country. Uh, and it went downhill for a long time, economics and bad management, whatever. When I was in Washington you know, a decade ago, I, I watched this great paper sort of really diminish itself. It's totally revived because of the news. And it's, it's the need of this country to have honest, hard-working journalism to hold the leadership of this country accountable. And that's what's happened. The Post has rebounded now. It's once again competing with the New York Times, as it did 15 years ago. And uh, that's what we need to see more of. I mean, you know, there's uh, what's happened. The Washington Post has a, a fact-checking service now because it, there's so much distortion and, and misinformation put out there that in the first six months of this administration, they documented 836 misstatements or lies from the president. That's more than four a day. Now, you know, some people are quite happy just to say that's fake news. Well, it's not fake news. It's, it's done by hardworking journalists with editors and fact checkers and, and really accountable journalism. Um, we need more of that. That's what needs to be done today, because there's a, there's a force out there trying to say that reality isn't, isn't truth, that there's a, alternate realities, um, trying to nullify real information and facts that govern a democracy. After all, you know, this is the fourth estate we're talking about, which our founding fathers enshrined in, in the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment to have freedom of the press because it was a vital necessity for a democracy to function. And it needs to function with truth, not lies and distortions. You know, we, we added, to just pick up on Lauren's point, um, we added 300,000 digital subscribers in the last quarter of 2016, which is more than all of 2014 and 2015 together. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, and, uh, and I'm proud to say that the, the paper attracted that, but I'm more proud to Say all these readers said, we, we want to get our news from a, a trusted source. 
It's very remarkable. And, you know, I was wondering, when looking at your work particularly, uh, you shifted from reporting to a column where you express well, your point of view much more clearly, I mean, not more clearly, but that's explicit. Yes. Is that a very different, do you think that's more useful in this particular climate? Well, I think there's a huge use for both. Um, Lord knows we want yes. reporters out there Absolutely. unearthing um, everything they've been unearthing. And uh, as just as a reader and someone who's in the business, to watch the Washington Post and the New York Times going at it every day, scoop, 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 it just, it's just fantastic. I mean, we're, we're in a golden age of journalism. Um, uh, but it's also made possible, you have to understand, by some very heroic and courageous people. You have to be, as Lauren uh, would appreciate, um, when you see a story where someone has leaked the transcript of the president's conversations with the president of Mexico um, uh, and um, uh, other world leaders, that means somebody inside is so worried because the number of people who have access to that kind of information or someone on Air Force One reported that the president coached Donald Trump Jr. through his statement, you have to reverse engineer some of these stories to appreciate how disturbed someone inside is that they are as good as we are. You don't break those kind of stories very often. So, you know, God bless that side of the business. And, I've, I've been at Columns now for uh, 21 years, and it's, it's, it's the most fun you can have legally. I mean, it's, um, uh, um, it's fantastic uh, uh, to have a, a voice um, uh, to comment on these things. But uh, I think readers know I'm, I write a very reported column, you know, um, and I, I really love to report. I, I, my, my views are, are pretty middle of the road because of just where I grew up and, and how I look at the world. But, um, it's, a, it's a fantastic time to be a columnist now, and I, I really um, so glad I have a voice to be able to comment at a time when I think a lot of really important things in my country are at stake, and that you wouldn't have normally as a reporter. No doubt they are, and, and before we go to open up a discussion, because I think all of us here are here, are here because we're passionate about this, and, and so we're going to have at least half an hour of this hour of questions. But I just want to underline one thing that I think most intelligent news readers or news consumers understand, but some may not, is that there's always been a great distinction in what the printed word is, or even less so in, in the visual media because they don't have it. But traditionally, there's a distinction between commentary and reportage. And the commentary comes in columns. It comes in the, on the editorial page, which is normally the newspaper's owner's view or the views that he endorses. And those are, those are subjective. Those, those are, are, are commentaries that are individual and, and from an, an analysis. But the real reporting, the, the real value is, is the reportage, which is done by reporters who are tasked with a job that's often difficult, often dangerous, of finding out both sides of an argument and laying it out so the reader can understand not just one point of view, but multiple points of views. And I think that's, that's one of the great values of American journalism. It doesn't happen elsewhere. When I was based in Italy it, many years ago, 
I used to have to get up every morning and read eight newspapers before I went to the office. I'd sit in a little cafe on the Piazza Navona and read these eight papers. Why? Why eight? Because each paper belonged to a different political party. There wasn't objective journalism the way we practice it in the United States. So I had to read the communist paper, L'Unita, and see what the communist party was thinking. I had to read the socialist paper, La Repubblica, to see what they were thinking. The Christian Democrats of the right, they had their own newspaper, the Corriere. And it was so different than what we have today here, where, where we try and put that all together and take, we strive in good newspapers, good media, to keep Editorial, editorializing out of the news pages. So try to be objective and try to lay out all sides rather than have everyone have to read eight newspapers. And I think in the age of fake news and blogs and all of that, that's where we're getting to. We're Italianizing the American media to the point that every, every source has its own personal point of view, so that's what you're getting. That's an important point. If you raise something else, that just one comment, that it's dangerous to be a journalist in a way it didn't used to be, that they've been targeted, they've been murdered. And, and that, in a sense, is a tribute to the importance of the work that you do. It's a tremendous tribute to what we expect of the news, that kind of integrity. So why don't we open it up now to whoever wants to venture the first question. Can we get a microphone on uh, that? There's, there are microphones that will run to you. <laughs> So um, they announced uh, today that Attorney General Jeff Sessions and I think the, oh sorry, um, I was saying that Attorney General Jeff Sessions and, um, you want me to stand? Mm -hmm. Okay. I read sign language. Um, uh, and uh, I think the NIA director or somebody are um, going to crack down on leakers and this was probably having to do in part with John Kelly now being chief of staff for the president. And I'm wondering um, if you think that's really going to have an impact on the leaks that are coming out, because as you say, there's a desperation from the inside that's probably fueling those leaks. Do you think it will have an impact? And if it does, what do you think that means for the news that we get on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, I, I think that's Jeff Sessions trying to save his job, first of all. Um, so let's, um, and by showing Trump that he's you know, going to double down on all of these things. Um, hard, hard to know what a dampening effect it will have. And look, Obama cracked down on leakers a lot as well, let's remember. Um, he didn't enjoy it any more than Trump did. Um, but uh, I think there's a lot of very, uh, I look at these people as whistleblowers, not leakers. And I think there's a lot of courageous people in these administrations. And you, also, you have to be in the news business to appreciate this, but you know, if you watched um, uh, you know, all the, the movies about Watergate, read about it, you, you kind of think that it all happens in a garage and somebody turns a lamp around, somebody whispers to you. Actually, so many leaks happen when somebody tells somebody who tells somebody else. And um, it's, it's rarely that the secretary calls you up and says, you know, this. It's usually somebody tells somebody tells somebody, and then you get it, and then you come back and reconfirm it in other ways. Uh, and so, good luck, Jeff. Well, I, I would like to just point out that, you know, 
leakage of news in Washington is part of the system. Yeah. It's built into the democratic framework. Yeah, Washington, everybody talks to everybody in Washington. There are cocktail parties, there's, there's, they meet in subways, whatever. And, and you know, someone works at one office, tells somebody in another office, and you're right, it just it circulates, and that sort of news eventually gets tracked down. But it's always been there. It just happens that today we're living in an existential era where things are so terrible and potentially so dangerous for the future of democracy in our country and its security that people are appalled and going out, and there's more leakage than there was under Obama or under George Bush's. Uh, under Lyndon Johnson, but there's always been leaks. It's it's it is what happens in Washington, and it's just because news flows through everybody's social networks. Yes. Thank you. I have a question that relates to historical viewpoints. We tend to see things from our own lifetime perspective because we live in circadian rhythms of 24 hours. I seem to recall from reading history that um, uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams uh, had supporters and they themselves were enemies, political enemies, for many, many years and wouldn't talk to one another. And that goes back to the election uh, of Jefferson. Um, when I think back to my, my own lifetime and I think about what I was reading and hearing on NPR about Robert Bork, I absolutely despised the man and I couldn't understand how anyone could nominate him. And many years later, I read about his history and I had a more moderate point of view about his capabilities as a jurist. Can you take the time factor and the fact that Mr. Jenkins says it's worse than it's ever been I don't know about that. I'm wondering if you're commenting about your lifetime, not the history of this great country. Thank you. Well, <laughs> I don't think our historical record ever has had a president who has lied and deceived the public as much as this one. I, you know, I may be wrong. I, I wasn't alive in the 19th century, uh, certainly not the 18th. Um, I, I, you know, I think we're in a new era politically. Uh, you know, when the founding fathers, I think one of the great flaws in the Constitution, personally, the founding fathers sat down and figured it out. They hadn't heard of Freud yet. They didn't have any clause in the Constitution that would look at a man's mental state when he runs for president. <laughs> I think that's something we should go back and do. Some, uh, some uh, fake news is simply uh, blathering and, and uh, self-promoting uh, and so on, but some is literally uh, malicious. And I wonder whether you feel that if, one, if it's possible to prove that, fake, that a piece of fake news is out for some very malicious purpose, that that should be made illegal? Well, I think we have, we have libel laws. You know, um, it's a good question, but 
Uh, we have libel laws that if, if, if I make up a story about you um, and I do it you know, recklessly with intent and it's false, um, you can take me to court. And so the problem is that um, you know my address and I know yours, but in this world now fake news comes from many blind sources. Uh, we learned that during the election uh, where you actually have you know, offices in Moscow that were designed and built to generate this stuff is very hard to, to track down. Just lying in general, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't I, above my pay grade, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I don't know if there's a question buried in my little ramble, but we, we I, hope so. I hope so too, <laughs> and it'll be a short ramble. Um, we belong to a, a book group, and um, we read a biography of, of someone, and someone in the book group said, gee, I wonder why they didn't have this fact in it. And somebody stated in that book group, there's no such thing as nonfiction. Everything is perceived through the person who wrote it. And I look at we had an African-American woman who worked for us who couldn't believe that I didn't believe that O.J. Simpson committed those murders. And I look at very liberal people that we're part of, and when we said something, when I said something critical of Hillary Clinton, they leapt, and, and we leaned that way, but they leapt into an, a defense and they couldn't see the other side. I guess my main point is that I don't think this is only about Trump. We've got really smart, very right-wing friends, and they perceive the world very differently than I do. And I'm not sure I understand how this happened. Well, I think that's indisputable. I, but let me comment on that. I mean, as a historian, I've asked myself, what differentiates what I write from fiction? I mean, I write stories, right? But I'm responsible for evidence. If you know more about that evidence than I do, or Laura, and, and Tom know more about the Middle East than I do, they can say, you're wrong because of this and this and this. So fiction is quite different. It isn't responsible to evidence. We know, writing on the basis of evidence that we trust, that, that we're interpreting. We're all interpreting. I mean, these two have very different views on certain topics, as you know. But that is a very different thing than simply making things up. What you raise is another question, though, and that is about how people in this country honestly see the same situation with very different eyes. Do you want to comment? Yeah, I mean, there's really it's an important question you raise. You know, um, what um, has disturbed me so much, and partly was the reason I wrote my last book, which which actually goes back to Minnesota and my roots, is because. Uh, uh, I really feel are, we are becoming Sunnis and Shiites, basically, not Democrats and Republicans anymore. That our politics is just becoming sectarianized and tribalized. So you hear people saying, well, I would never want my kids to marry one of them. Um, and they're not talking about someone of another race or religion bad enough. Um, they're actually talking about someone of a different party now. Or if you're in Washington where we live, it's, I hope none of them will be at the dinner party now. Um, uh, and, uh, and it applies to both sides. And so I, I think it's one of the worst things happening in the country right now. And um, 
you know, one of the things that I, I learned covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, for, for so many years, as did Lauren, um, is that uh, so I would get a lot of complaints on the New York Times reporter writing about the Middle East. So you can imagine what a freak show that could be sometimes. And um, uh, people would say, you know, well, you didn't mention this, so you didn't mention that. And I would always tell them, and Lauren had to deal with this at NPR, we're not writing the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in every column or every story, okay? Do not judge me by one story. Judge me over a year. If over a year you see a pattern in my reporting, then, then please raise it with me and my editors. But just because this story um, you know, tilted one way or another, what is objectivity? The objectivity is actually a tension between two things, disinterest and understanding. I cannot possibly write a fair story about you if I don't almost look at the world through your eyes. If I don't really look at the world almost through your eyes and understand where you're coming from. And I also can't write a fair story about you if I'm interested, if I have an interest in you. I've got to remain disinterested. And the reason objectivity is hard to get is a tension between the two. Now, if you look at my reporting from the Middle East, one day I may have, may have been more understanding of Palestinians, another day more understanding of Israelis. But if over the year I've managed to, to do that, keep a tension between that, and, and be true, and by the way, objectivity is not balance, okay, that I write equal number of stories about one side or the other. Sometimes one side is doing a lot worse than the other, and you've got to be able to make those calls. But the other thing you learn when you cover that conflict is people will come to you and say, you never write about when, when they do this. And I say, actually, you know, I wrote that last Thursday. It's on page A7 of the New York Times above the fold, okay? Your problem is nobody cared. Do not blame me for the fact that I actually wrote about it, but nobody then, you know, acted on it. And, and so you have to be very clear-headed. I find you know, a lot of journalists will say, well, both sides are criticizing me. I must be doing something right. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, because any moron can write in a way that offends both sides, okay? Um, I want people, what my favorite comment from readers, frankly, is when people come up and say, I read you all the time, don't always agree, though. Okay, that's what I want. I, I, want, I, I want you to be engaged with what I'm doing. I want you to have enough respect that you want to read me, but you want to be engaged and sometimes disagree. That's what I'm, I'm shooting for that tension. I, I'm not in a popularity contest, you know, uh, for either side. Well, I mean, in answer to that, I think the real problem of this country, why people have some, you know, the, we all grew up believing that we shared certain values. There were values that had come up through the founding fathers on through our experience, uh, the historic experience of America's development. And, and it was about sharing and having different points of view, but being able to get together and discuss them, to exchange them, and find some sort of compromise in these different views that led us ahead and kept the society united and going forward. And I think what we're really experiencing today, and it's, it's not just President Trump, it's been happening for decades, uh, as, as the society has fragmented into partisanship where the idea of compromise is no longer acceptable. You either 
there or you're there, but you can't meet and, and join. That's why you know there's total paralysis in our Congress and has been for the last decade or more. Uh, we're not getting anything done. We're not. The politics has devolved, devolved from producing something for the nation as a whole and to better life into separate sects and, and factions that, that just don't want to do anything except advance their own interests. And I think that's the real problem we're facing. And we're just we're now reaching a really critical stage. But it's, it's been developing for quite a while. My husband's right over here. He'll attest to that. Um, question. With papers merging, with a few people knowing that they can really reach the market through that medium, um, and they, do you see that the values of the owners tend to restrict, put boundaries on the agendas of the reporter and the, uh, the goals that the papers are supposed to reach. Are you seeing those, those values of these specific owners changing? It depends on the owner. I mean, they're good owners and bad owners, like they're good presidents and bad presidents. I mean, there, there's a mix. So there's no such thing as a general consensus of newspaper owners, and they all behave the same way. I mean, there's a Rupert Murdoch, who's known as by all my Australian friends as the dirty digger for all the damage he's done to his country's newspapers. And now he's here, you know, running Fox News and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and there's the Salzburgers of uh, the New York Times, and they have totally different uh, value systems. And uh, I'll let Tom talk about the New York Times. But it, good newspapers allow their reporters to report, and they get their voice on the editorial page and hiring the new editor of the paper. But uh, the reporters on a serious newspaper have great independence to do the job they're trained to do. Let me just pick up where, where um, Lauren left off. Um, so I, I work for the most remarkable, I think, newspaper family in American history. And I, uh, uh, I'm i not in jeopardy of losing my job. So I, I say that as a, as a statement of fact. Okay, And um, I'll tell you a couple stories, because I was talking to a, some young journalists the other day. One is, um, so I was hired by Punch Salzberger, who's our current publisher, Arthur Salzberger's father. Um, and Abe Rosenthal, who was then the editor. And um, when Punch died uh, two and a half years ago now, uh, the paper invited everyone who wanted to. We did an in-house paper in his honor, in memory. And they invited anyone to write anything they wanted about Punch, a memory. And uh, I did a, just a short item in which I noted that for, I've been at the paper for 37 years. Um, and during those 37 years, I, I have been probably the primary person over that period writing about the most neuralgic issue for the New York Times, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, given our paper and, and our a very large Jewish readership. Very controversial. To this day, I have no idea what Punch Salzberger thought of my coverage. I, he died without ever saying to me, Tom, could you be a little nicer to the Palestinians? Could you be a little nicer to the Israelis? For 37 years, I covered the most sensitive story for them. And he got slings and arrows over me over those years, I guarantee you. Another story, 
uh, five years ago, six years ago, I went after General Motors um, because they uh, came out with a plan that if you bought a Hummer or a Suburban, they would give you free gas for a year. <laughs> Dumbest thing I ever uh, uh, could possibly think of. And I did a number of columns calling them out on that. And um, let's say they took it out on the paper um, uh, in a really uh, way that, that was significant for the New York Times. My, the only way I knew that they'd even done that was my publisher, Arthur, uh, uh, Salzburger Jr. called me one day and said, Tom, I, I got to go to Detroit uh, for a meeting with the car companies. Would you just remind me what you wrote? <laughs> the only way I found out. But I'll tell you a third story very quickly. Um, when Lauren and I, we were in Beirut in the summer of 82, and the first week of the war, my apartment in Beirut was blown up, and my uh, driver's wife and two daughters were killed in my apartment. Um, it's one of the worst things that ever happened in my life. You know? and we had to help dig them out. It was a terrible thing. Uh, the New York Times did not let me write about it. Um, they eventually did a small story, because everyone else was writing about it. But their message to me was, you're not the news. People are getting blown up and killed all over bigger. Today, if you get cut, you Instagram it, you send it around the world as a report. Somebody cut me, I got, I got a cut here by this policeman. You know, My apartment was blown up, and the New York Times said, you are not the story. That's how Lauren and I were raised. And so what I see now, um, uh, where everyone tweeting left, right, and center, and this does disturb me, and it is going to get news reporters. We have news reporters tweeting, and they're tweeting opinions. And Twitter is a gigantic smart aleck machine, so it's a, com a competition over who can be the biggest smart aleck. And Trump sees that, and no wonder some days he says, you guys are, this is not news. This is, you guys are opinion. And, and Twitter is going to be the death of some good reporters. Um, I, I was curious to hear what each of you would say is the difference between what we're calling today fake news and propaganda, and to the extent to which fake news has bled over into propaganda, something that at least I was raised to believe this country didn't do. Well, I think fake news is propaganda, mostly. Uh, that's, there's no difference. It's just, you know, let, let's be clear about the term fake news. There's always been propaganda. There's always been spin. There's always been leaks. There's always been distortions of one form or another. Fake news is a term that only came in vogue when Donald Trump began running for office in, nine, in 2016. Uh, before that, the, the specific fake news wasn't wasn't talked about. It wasn't you know there may have been fake news, but it was that was a term that he coined, and he was one of the creators of it. If you remember, he was the one who spent most of his campaign before his campaign, but his campaign to become a candidate, uh, questioning Obama's birth and religion, claiming he wasn't an American citizen and that he was a Muslim. Now that that that's propaganda, and that's malicious use of facts. They weren't facts; they were conspiracy theories. So I don't think there's a real difference yeah. between propaganda and fake news. Is 
is in my imagination or has something actually changed Can in you America? speak into the microphone? I, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is it my imagination or has something really quite basic changed in America where um, 35 or 40 percent of the people could, they're pissed off and so they vote for Donald Trump and as things roll out and as he exhibits so many un-American uh, traits, what is it that does not allow them to change their mind? I, I don't understand it. I, I feel like he could kill uh, 30 kids in a classroom and they go, well, I'm sure he had a good reason for that. I mean, is there something that has happened that 35 or 40% of us can do that? Well, I, I think, you know, whenever you see something what, that you've described, I, I tend to explain it in terms of culture. So you can't talk people out of something they haven't been talked into. Um, so I think these are cultural responses. And there's a whole group of leaders around the world who have learned to manipulate this. So Putin has found a way to manipulate that sort of cultural, you know, a whole set of cultural issues around the place of Russia in the world, the you know, West's desire to take us down. Xi Jinping does the same in China. Erdogan does it in Turkey. They've all, Bibi does it, frankly, you know, uh, in Israel. They've all found a way to basically generate a following among people who hate the people who hate Trump more than they actually care about Trump. So the real question is why are they there? What is going on with them? And to me, the, the answer I, I come to is that um, what, because of the pace of change you know, that we've gone through. Um, there's a lot of people who are uprooted right now. They're unmoored, they're unanchored. Um, they, uh, they, they go to the grocery store and someone's wearing a, a head covering that isn't a baseball cap. Uh, and speaking a language they don't understand. Uh, they go into the men's room and there's someone of a different gender there. They go to the office and their boss has just rolled up a robot next to their desk and he seems to be studying their job. And so all of this, there's a lot of people who are feeling unmoored and unanchored. And at the same time, um, they feel uh, they, they've lost the, the things that uh, gave them dignity in life. And you know, uh, I, I say in my new book, if, if I could change my business card, now in retrospect, it would say uh, Thomas L. Friedman, New York Times humiliation correspondent. Because really what I've done for the last 37 years, so much of it, is acting out on people, watching people act out on their humiliation. Uh, whether it's Palestinians, uh, young Muslims who blow themselves up, Russians, Chinese, you know, and the flip side, that coin of dignity and humiliation, and who then comes and gives you dignity, that's what Trump is doing. Um, he's giving people who are uprooted and feeling looked down upon, often by people like us, okay, and therefore they actually hate the people who hate him more than they're even thinking about him. And the next Democratic candidate, if they have any hope of breaking that, has got to go to that. People don't listen through their ears. They listen through their stomach, okay? And if you connect with them on a gut level, and Trump did, they tell you, don't bother me with the details. I trust you. And if you don't connect with them on a gut level, you can't give them enough details, even on your website, www.hillaryclinton.com, okay? And so, 
you've got to find that gut thing. But there's something there, and it really needs exploring. That's an important point. Yeah. Uh, this maybe piggybacks on the point that you just made, and, and maybe there's further comment on it. I was um, chilled last night. I watched a clip of a speech that Trump gave last night in West Virginia. And the chilling part to me was he um, basically began talking about Mueller's investigation and essentially said to this audience of adoring supporters, if Mueller comes up with something, if there is something, it's disrespecting you. He is stealing your vote. You chose me as a leader, and he is telling you you can't have the leader you wanted, and don't you feel disrespected by that? And the crowd went wild, insane. And I just felt cold through my... One thought was, all those people have a lot of guns, and we don't. But (laughs) They also don't have any coal. You know, I, I, would, I would say it. it's really what we're talking about. He's connecting to them on the gut level. He's manipulating them very effectively. You know, I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine this morning and he told me that he had a boss who once said to him, um, when people get power, um, they, they, one of two things happen. They either swell or they grow. Um, and um, Trump is swelling. Okay, so every bad feature he had in private life before this is now being amplified. There's been no growth in the job. He's not actually trying to be president of the country. When he's in trouble, he goes to West Virginia and he gives that speech. But, you know, the good news is if you look at the polls, the polls say he's losing support now among his supporters. But this is a guy, um, and this, I, I think, we have not even begun to see the trouble here. Because think we haven't had a crisis yet. You know, I've written this many times that my, my, my friend Dove Seidman, you know, has pointed out. Trump has formal authority, but he has no moral authority. And that's, we've never had a president uh, in, in our time, I think, who had formal authority, but zero moral authority. Uh, and when we get into a crisis, and he's going to have to look into the camera and say, I had to bomb North Korea, I had to do this with China, the CIA told me, and people are going to say, trust you? So we haven't begun to see the trouble here because his record in private life is whenever he got in trouble, he kicked over the game board. Went, declared bankruptcy, left people, stiffed them with the money. He never lost anything because before he loses, he kicks over the game board. And he's going to try to do that if Mueller comes after him. Have I ruined your dinner yet? Because um, <laughs> I do weddings and bar mitzvahs also. so. so. Okay. Uh, regarding the, the polarization, could you comment about uh, the impact of social media on the tribalization that's been going on and how I fear that that's only going to escalate? Uh, and the other part of the question is, on your digital 300,000, and that's where the money is going forward with print media, do you see that exponentially going to grow? Uh, well, in the second, I sure hope so, because um, we... Uh, we at the New York Times, we don't have an oil well. We don't um, have a bookstore. We, we have the newspaper. So um, uh, we, we certainly need every subscriber we can get in the future is digital journalism. But look, there's no question that narrowcasting, as a result of people getting their news now through non-news feeds, you know, 
um, uh, that are supposedly use algorithms to tailor the feed to you um, uh, is a big part of the problem. Lauren alluded to this, I, you know, that we all now, we all don't watch Walter Conkite or Huntley Brinkley together um, uh, uh, at, at night. And so um, I personally, I, I, I'd like to read a variety of things. I like to know what conservatives are saying, liberals, libertarians, so I read a range of things. But I think there, um, it is essential that our public schools begin to teach digital civics from kindergarten. That when you go to the internet, um, uh, I've, I've often been in arguments with people, and they'll say, "But, but, 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 but I read it on the internet," if this, as if that settles the bar bet, because it comes in a patina of technology. You think it's true, but we need to teach young people how to triangulate. You know, just because you read it in Wikipedia, just because you read it here, you need to Google it, check it. Maybe there is no Aspen Daily Tribune, you know. Uh, that's the first thing you'll discover when you Google that news story. I think it goes back also to discrimination of what you read. I mean, it, you know, you had it in, in older times. You, you had to decide what newspaper you're going to read and how you read a newspaper and, and what's true and what might not be and what the facts are, what are the sources. The Internet just magnifies that. You have to, you know, it's a great source. Uh, I can sit here in Aspen in my office and, and read, you know, the, the news in Beijing and Moscow and anywhere in the world, but there's a lot of fake news out there. There's a lot of badly sourced news. There's a lot of just blogs from people you don't know, and I think you have to go and find out what are the good sources that are on the Internet. There's terrific information there, but there's also a lot of misinformation, and it's, it's really about education of, of how you approach all of this this new world of information that, that's upon us. But uh, you have to discriminate. The, 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 the internet's an open sewer of untreated, unfiltered information. It has diamonds and gold and rubies and silver. And it has broken cans, you know, chipped glass, um, um, and some really toxic waste. And it's essential for our democracy that we build the internal filters into our citizens and young people to filter out the gold and the diamonds from the toxic waste. What is so dangerous about this moment is that we have a president who stands with the presidential seal in front of him who's trying to destroy those filters. This is such a fascinating discussion, and there's so many good questions. Uh, would, would you speak, and then you and we just have a couple more minutes? So you think about tipping points in history. Watergate was a journalistic tipping point that basically created investigative journalism. I'd love to hear both of your thoughts, put your crystal ball in front of you a little bit, and tell us what you think a post-Trump era will look like for journalism once this settles down, and then what will elections look like? Well, that will depend on the post-Trump era. I mean, are we going to get out of it? I mean, who knows? I mean, this could be the end. This could be the collapse of, of this whole American experiment in democracy. Uh, assuming that we don't collapse into some sort of nationalism, social nationalism, Nazism, or something like that. I guess the best case scenario is, is that Trump leaves the scene one way or the other, whether he serves out his four years or is impeached. Uh, and America can come back and learn from the disaster of that experience. And we can knit the country back together uh, as I said, it's the best thing that's happened to journalism. Uh, it's revived the Washington Post from near being a moribund newspaper 10 years ago to 
being a terrific newspaper now. The New York Times has stood up. Even the Wall Street Journal has stood up. Um, it could be after Trump, uh, we'll go back to some sort of normality, but also it could be that he ruins the whole experiment. We end up into a dictatorship uh, run by demagogues. It's happened elsewhere. It's happened in history. It happened to the Roman Empire. It happened to the Romanovs in Russia. Uh, Tom? Yeah. Have you seen something optimistic? Yeah. My son is one of those people yeah. who, who asked for his birthday as one of his subscriptions in New York John Times and NPR. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't done that before. And he said, this is awful. This is awful. What's going on? And I said, the difference is now you are energized. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to pick up with what Lauren said, I think there's a I, I hope that young people like watching even Saturday Night Live and seeing like all these journalists now being depicted and and maybe I want to be one of those you know or in, or in the White House we're watching the White House briefing now you know I really I really hope that they will want to go into that but um, unfortunately you know, a lot of young people get their news now you know through social media through feed, through through Facebook they don't even know it comes from the Washington Post or the New York Times uh, that's just a little thing down there there on the bottom so uh, you know you, you really hope that. Um, that there will be that kind of follow-up. But to, to just pick up on the last point Lauren made, you know, the night of the election, um, I, I, I've been a Wednesday columnist almost my entire career. What that means is I get the first column after every election. And that can be really fun and, and uh, can be really harrowing. Um, in this case, I had to write three different columns, uh, as my wife here watched me do, from you know, 8 to 10 and then 2 in the morning. But they all began the same way. I uh, began with a quote from a dear friend of Anna, uh, from Zimbabwe, who said uh, to me once several years ago, you Americans, you kick around this country like it's a football. It's actually not a football. It's a Fabergé egg. You can drop it. You can break it. And you have to be from a country like Zimbabwe to appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. So, Tom, you kind of scared me when you, when, especially when you said um, we've only begun to see the trouble here. And I, too, like I think a lot of people in this room, was just totally flabbergasted by the fact that so many people can't see what we see. So I really liked what you said about the fact that most people do not listen with their ears. They listen with their gut. So if they really only listen with their gut then how can we, especially journalists, start to talk to their guts? Well, it's a very good question. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, my last column before the election, a week before, the, the Wednesday before, was addressed to Trump voters. And it began, dear fellow Americans. Didn't begin, you morons, you idiots. Um, I'm, I'm serious, it began, dear fellow Americans. We're lit in the same country. You're not seeing what I'm seeing. Let me share with you what I think I'm seeing. And let me share with you my feeling about why your anxiety and, and why I think this guy won't address it. So um, there's one thing I learned being a little Jewish guy from Minnesota covering the Arab world. Um, and, uh, and covering it in a way that uh, I think Lauren would attest. I, I wasn't always out there saying, you're all wonderful, you're all great, it's all the Israelis' fault. Okay. Um, I, I got in people's face on both sides. Um, but this is what I learned from that whole experience, that the most important 
uh, thing for a journalist is to be a good listener. Um, and it's true, I think, of being a politician and a neighbor and a parent. Not only because when you listen, you learn things, but much more importantly, what you say when you listen. Listening is a sign of respect. And it's amazing, you go into a room of, of young Palestinians and they got your columns printed out there and they're ready to carve you up and you just spend an hour listening to them. And I don't mean just nodding your head and waiting for them to stop talking, but deep listening, and people can tell. Um, at the end of that hour, they all want to talk to you. But there's a lot of people feeling very disrespected. They are here all over the place. And when people sense you're listening, you can then say anything to them, that you're respecting them. And if they think you're not respecting them, you cannot tell them the sun is shining. You know? And so, um, it's, that's really the key, and, and I think there's a lot of people feeling talked at, uh, that no one was listening to them, and, um, and I, I may have been guilty of that, you know, until this election. I didn't know all these people were out there. I just took a trip through Appalachia just to see what I was missing, you know. But um, I think that's a big, that's, that's where you get to people's gut. I would add, I would add to that, I, you know, you're, you're totally right, Tom, but I, I think, it's not just the journalists that weren't listening. It's the political class of both parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, and that's where Trump capitalized on it. The Democratic Party wasn't talking to the people and listening to them. They were still, they've gotten so wrapped up with their own world in Washington and Wall Street, and I think the Republican elites were too. Yeah. And, and they left this whole dissatisfied segment of American society uh, to someone like Trump, who, who actually was smart enough to feel that's where his base was, and he could capitalize on it. I wish we could hear from everyone, but it's such an important conversation. Uh, it's, we're after our time, so thank you so much. Before you go, I just want to say thank you all. Thank you all so much for coming. Before you go, um, I, I want to thank our panelists. And, uh, and there's a book table out front with a, a membership table as well. So if you have not already become a member of Explore More, um, this is our first event that we have kicked off as, as an Explore More big event that, that we hope to do lots more of. And so please join us in becoming our partners. Memberships start at $25, but we welcome any level of giving. and. You can sign up to be a member out at the book table where Tom Friedman will also be signing some books. Buy so, books. Yes, buy books. Thank you all for coming. Great job. Wonderful job. It was really